Welcome to the World Cafe. I'm Kaleo. If you needed a hit for your movie soundtrack in the 1980s, there was a good chance you'd call on Kenny Loggins. The singer-songwriter had several hits for movies like Top Gun, Caddyshack, and Footloose. Loggins was dubbed the King of Soundtracks, a title I was somewhat surprised to learn came from his manager. Loggins has a new memoir appropriately titled Still All Right that covers his time as one of the best-selling artists of the 1980s, but also gives a full picture into his work with Loggins and Messina, the band he formed with producer Jim Messina in the 1970s. Loggins will talk to me about being a struggling musician growing up in Southern California, the unique constraints of working with Jim Messina, and not being the first choice for songs that are now some of his signature hits. Our conversation in just a minute, after one of his most well-known songs from Caddyshack, it's I'm All Right. I'm All Right, one of the many iconic songs in the discography of our guest, Kenny Loggins. The Grammy Award winner and king of the soundtrack has a new memoir. It's appropriately titled Still All Right. On the World Cafe, I am Kaleo. Kenny, so nice to meet. Congrats on the book. Uh, thank you. It's, it's good to be here. You know, one of, there are so many great stories in the book, but regarding that song, I was surprised to find out that if Harold Ramis had used his working track for Caddyshack, there would be a very different voice on that soundtrack. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, when I went in to see the, the rough edit of the movie, uh, John Peters called me. It was his, this was his first production. And, and I had worked with him and Barbara Streisand on Their Star is Born. And he called me and said, I think I have a really funny movie. Do you want to come down and, and help me with the music? So I went and I saw a screening, and in the screening, in the op opening moment of the movie is Danny, the lead character, riding his bike through a suburban landscape. And the song that he picked was uh, Serve Somebody by Bob Dylan. And I remember sitting there thinking, the first thing I thought was, this song doesn't work at all. <laughs> and then about halfway through the movie, I began to, it crossed my mind. I thought, no, every song he's put in here seems to be on purpose, so I must assume that is too. So what's he trying to tell me? Dylan is the quintessential rebel. He's trying to tell me that this character is a rebel. But all through the movie, he's not. Yeah. He's trying really hard to fit into the country club life. And he doesn't really become the rebel until the end of the movie. So Ramos was foreshadowing the evolution of that character. So that's where I'm All Right came from. It was like, okay, I need, I need to, to have a punk stance on this, that he's basically, F you, leave me alone. I'm all right, don't nobody worry about me. Why you got to give me a fight? Just let me be. All the lyrics point at a character who's breaking free. There you go. You've written a book before, The Unimaginable Life. So this is not your first rodeo as an author, but an autobiography, that's a very different beast. Why did you want to write a memoir? Um, a publisher offered me a bunch of money to do it. <laughs> that, that was my first excuse. But it was also because I have grandchildren now. And 
I want them to, you know, when one of them is curious about who grandpa was, I want him to be, have an access to that. So not just my story, but my personality to come through. I wanted my humor to come through. I wanted to feel like when it came time to read this book out loud onto a recording for the audiobook, I wanted it to feel like I'm sitting at dinner with you and we're just t telling stories. Uh, the process was sort of like a cross between a deposition and, uh, and, and therapy. And I also realized, as I was writing the book, that my mother was, was probably a manic depressive. And I didn't really see it and, and allow myself to see it until we really dropped in on the stories. And I started to see, wait a minute, this is, this is an interesting pattern of me trying to constantly please my mother. And where and now where does that take me in relationship to women and my marriages? And, and in what way was I playing that out in my first marriages? So it's really, I'm not kidding, it really was like a, a kind of therapy to drop in and take a objective look at my own life. Um, you know, and so when I die, I won't have to do that whole big review thing that you will. <laughs> Fair enough. We're here with Kenny Loggins on World Cafe. The new memoir is called Still All Right. You went through some tough times as a teenager with tough gigs, some failures in the music career that, that might have, like, you know, pushed a, another person away from it, you know. How did it feel to revisit that part of your life where you weren't sure if you were going to make it in music? Um, well, I just I wanted to tell the story as honestly as possible. And it doesn't mean that you're always super confident about what you're doing. You know, going, mm -hmm. out, going out with the electric prunes when I dropped out of City College and, and joined Jeremy Stewart and we reformed the electric prunes, of all things. And I discovered that uh, acoustic folky stuff was not their audience's first choice. And sure, or, or not having a drummer. <laughs> yeah, well, that was another thing, yeah. That, that going out on the road as, as a... As a Rock band that's a psychedelic rock, rock band without a drummer. Well, what could be more psychedelic? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, um, and it was challenging. And I remember getting up there and singing Danny's song at House of Pooh Corner. And the audience literally walked out on one of the shows because they didn't want that. And they didn't know who I was. People smile and tell me I'm the lucky one. And we've just begun. Think I'm gonna have a son. Coming back from that, and which is a more direct way to answer your question, coming back from that experience of having those songs let me down for the first time ever, uh, I had to kind of regroup. I had to, to stop and take a look at it and go, well, what was going on there? And I really had to accept the fact that that, that was an audience that wasn't gonna like my stuff, no matter how good it was. Uh, it was not what they came for. And, um, and so I realized that I needed to be more selective about where I played, who I played for. I needed to find my audience, you know. And then it became obvious that it was the acoustic audience of, of James Taylor and Cat Stevens. And those, their audiences would eventually be my audience. In the morning when I rise Bring a tear of joy 
one of the reasons why I, I like reading memoirs is because it's a chance to hear a musician's complete story, musically too, not just the parts of someone's career that I know well, which in this instance could be your 80s output on. So hearing the whole story on Loggins and Messina was really captivating. I think what first stood out for me is the moment you met uh, Jim and you had the chance to play for him and you you recall he wasn't impressed. Yeah, well, I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> you know, that, that wouldn't have helped my confidence. He wasn't initially as impressed, not because it wasn't good, he says, but because he didn't necessarily want to produce another folk singer or another country rock band. And so he was concerned that everything that I'd showed him, Danny's song, House of Pooh Corner, some of the early tunes, were more balladish. And he wanted, he wanted to produce more of a rock and roll band. So he was stuck with me. And, uh, and we started working on stuff. And then as we began singing things together to, to figure out what the arrangements were, we noticed that there was a pretty good blend between our voices. And, and I liked the stuff he'd been writing that he wasn't able to do in Poco. So we started to work a couple of those things up. And mm. that's really how Loggins and Messina was born, was just from making a Kenny record that became a Kenny and Jimmy record. Yeah. And it's interesting to hear about how your dynamic contrasted a little bit. Some, I, I guess as someone who is not the most organized, buttoned-up person, I could identify with your predicament, Kenny, working with someone who was a relentless rehearser and was very much like practice, practice, practice. How was that for you as someone who, you know, had a bit of spontaneity, wanted to improvise, wanted to roll in with the guys and, and try something different? Well, I, I wasn't quite... When Jimmy and I first started, we worked together, just the two of us, for at least six months. Mm-hmm. And um, that... And he would turn on a metronome and we would practice the arrangement of House of Pooh Corner over and over and over again for hours. And anywhere where I'd start to rush or start to lean back was painfully obvious. So I had to learn how to play my part to a metronome. And it worked for the vibe of that tune. There were things like that that would literally drive me crazy. But because I had surrendered to the idea that he was the producer, he was the guy with the experience, I'm going to follow where he leads. And that mindset put me in a place where I may have accepted more than I should have. Mm-hmm. I didn't really allow myself a boundary because I didn't feel I had a right to one. I was a newbie and I needed to learn. Right. And it sounded like he imparted some very valuable lessons for you with the music industry and in terms of arrangements and, and performance. Absolutely. That's the stuff when you're a young kid and you're new at it. That's the stuff you're dying to learn. <laughs> You know, that yeah. how to put a band together, how to keep the band together, how, how, what kind of money do you have to work with, where are you going to find the money, where are you going to get the guitars, where are you on and on and on, management, agencies. You know, I learned a lot from Jimmy. Yeah, and your first big hit or biggest hit with Loggins and Messina is something that I, I think a lot of songwriters uh, I've spoken to over the years lament, which is, you know, you, this big hit comes out of comes out of this thing that wasn't all too serious for you. It wasn't like, this is the song I've been waiting for for 15 years. Your mama don't dance and your daddy don't rock and roll.
Mama Don't Dance, can you talk a little bit about how that ended up coming together? Yeah, we were, we were rehearsing our first album, and Mama Don't Dance was not a part of it. And um, we were waiting for the band to show up for rehearsal one day, and Jimmy pulled out his guitar, and he does this little sort of... Um, he was doing this kind of Kansas City shuffle on the, on the guitar, and, and then he came up with that line, Mama don't dance and your daddy don't rock. And it was kind of a down and dirty kind of shuffle. It was really cool. And then as we worked it up, we put it in the show as an encore just for the fun of it. And the audience went crazy. And I think they thought they knew the song. It has that level of familiarity to it. And... Um, and so we just continued to work on it and write it. It got faster, it got more poppy, and uh, then we recorded it. But I think what you're referring to in your question was that sort of mild embarrassment for having yeah. having the hit song not really represent the act. You know, mm-hmm. that that was painfully obvious to all of us. And all of a sudden, so Jimmy would always say in interviews that Mama Don't Dance is an extension of our senses of humor. Mm-hmm. But people don't get that. People just hear Mama Don't Dance. Oh, they're, they're kind of a, a throwback rock act or something. The album should sound like 10 more tracks of that, which, which clearly it didn't. But it's st- the, the debut album, you know, Sitting In, really resonated and was, was doing something quite different than what you might have been expecting from the Laurel Canyon sound or some of the, you know, other things that were popular in rock music like Zeppelin at the time. Oh, absolutely. We were, we were, <laughs> we were an animal unto ourselves. We, uh, it was another version of an extension from Buffalo Springfield. Jimmy had been in Buffalo Springfield. He'd produced it. He played bass in it. And he knew the electronic sounds that they used. So we had that whole, whole thing going for us because he invented some of the chained compression stuff that the Springfield did back at, on the Last Time Around album. We had the sonic palette. We had, he's a Texas guy, so we had the sort of countrified thing in there automatically because he plays a Telecaster. And then I was writing somewhat in that style because that was one of the things that, you know, Buffalo Springfield was a big impression on me and a big sure. influence on what I was writing at the time. Yeah. We're here on the World Cafe talking with Kenny Loggins. His new memoir, Still All Right, available now. My name is Kaleo. I stopped and and broke out the highlighter to read this line, and you guys had just gotten into a fight about something, and Jim says, we should break up now while we're still friends. And and so many professional relationships you hear about with people not, or letting that get in the way, and then the friendship ends as well. To have that clarity, I think Jimmy was in a u- unique position to have the clarity to say something like that because he'd been through two major breakups. He'd been through the breakup of Buffalo Springfield, and then he was deeply involved in the breakup of, of Poco and the reforming of that band. And, uh, and so he saw what was going on for me. He saw my frustration. He saw that I was getting more and more angry, and I was more and more ready to move on into, in my career, into my solo part of my career. Um, and I think that was a moment of clarity. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, we were, we were doing well 
with the shows we were booking, so we were getting paid well. And that's the seduction of, for acts that don't break up because the, the money overwhelms the emotional reality. But mm-hmm. Jimmy'd been through it. He wasn't that enticed to go through it again. And I was super ready to, to jump. It, what didn't, the money didn't matter to me. What mattered was the, to follow the creative angel that was talking to me. Yeah. How, how, do you de- how do you develop that, that muscle where you, you, know, you essentially weren't a producer? You were working with a producer closely, but when it comes time to take the reins and you're in charge, did you find that to be a natural evolution? Somewhat, yeah. Um, thanks to Loggins and Messina, my ear had been trained to where I was really hearing more and more aspects of my music. The first big leap for me was a song called Till the Ends Meet, where I heard all the parts as I was writing the song. And I hadn't had that experience before. Um, so it was probably just through the, the trial and error of learning, learning to do that. And then gradually, when I would get a song idea, I'd have a tape recorder, and I would start with the tempo and the drum groove. I would lay that down, then I would lay down the bass line, all one after the other on a cassette machine. Because I could hear the elements that made that melody work. And then I would sing the melody over that. And so that by the time I got back to reviewing all that stuff, uh, I would understand what the hell I was singing on the cassette. And you know, most of my co-writers like David Foster would listen to that and go, what the hell is that? It sounds like, oh, it's three in the morning, I woke up with this melody and I had to put it down and not wake up anybody else in the room. So, so it was uh, challenging. I had, to, I had to create my own system to learn my music as it evolved. Um, I want to switch over to a different musical partnership for a second because Michael McDonald has been a guest on World Cafe a few times, and I had the chance to talk to him about writing What a Fool Believes, and he tells me this story about how Kenny Logan comes over to his house and they spend the weekend writing this song, and it was a very organic partnership, uh, is what he said. It was an organic uh, weekend working together, and they had the song by the end of the weekend. We had most of the song by the end of that day. I had the cassette, and I was listening, like, listening to it on the way home, laughing, because it was so good. I just knew it was, it was a really good song, and we call, I call it a big fish. You know, when, you, when you have one of those on the hook, you don't want to lose it. But I had heard Michael's work on Fault Line, on the Doobie Brothers Fault Line album. And that's when I was blown away. I'd never heard anything like it. And to me, he was like a cross between Ray Charles and, and Steve Winwood. I mean, there was just a uniqueness to what he was doing. And so we, we made an appointment. I went over to his home in Encino, or maybe Sherman Oaks, and we... And I was, I was pulling the guitar out of the trunk of the car. The door to his, his front door was open, or ajar, and he, I heard the piano coming through the open door. And what I was hearing was dum, dum, da, 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 And then Michael, and he had the melodic line of the verse. down the door but as I was going up to the door 
he stops playing that that part. And so he he got to and he stops. And my imagination goes, and so I knock on the door and I say, yeah, hi, hi, how you doing? No, 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 no small talk. We just go right to, what was that thing you were just playing on the piano? Because I think I know how the next part goes. I like to say that uh, we were writing together before we met. Cafe here with Kenny Loggins. Um, you start still all right with the story about your 1991 album Leap of Faith uh, in the foreword, and it has a signif- significant chapter later on. And it's very clear uh, it's extremely important to you, if not the most important album that, that you've worked on in your solo career. Can you talk a little bit about why it's so meaningful to you, and maybe a little bit about why people m- might have slept on it or shouldn't have slept on it? Oh. Um, it was the album I was writing as my first marriage was dissolving and as my second marriage was forming. I was not aware that I was falling in love at the time, but I had definitely left and was living on my own. And so the, the arc of the album lyrically starts with the sadness of the loss of the marriage, a song called Now or Never, and moves on in through the metamorphosis of realizing that you're getting a divorce, which is the real thing. And then the falling in love time just sort of evolves out of that. And so because my life had run that arc, my music was running that arc. And so it sort of created a full circle. And so it was an opportunity as an artist to write during a major process of one's life. And how could I sum up those feelings and really express what was going on? And the creativity was just there. It was just at my fingertips. It was pouring out of me because it, it was just a moment that an artist dreams of being in. I, 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 I did it for you and the boss because love should teach you joy. Not the imitation that your mama and daddy tried to show you. I did it for you and for me, and because I still believe there's only one thing that you can never give up, never compromise on. That's a real thing you need in life. So, the real thing, you know, which is that song about telling, in this case, my daughter that I'm moving out. Difficult, difficult to, to hold and then difficult to express as an artist. 
where you have to be willing to be extremely vulnerable. I have to be willing to go there and say it out loud. And even while I was writing it with David Foster, when he asked me, is this happening to you? I said, no. So that rational part of my mind was fighting it. But the artistic part of my mind was saying, you got to write this shit, man. You got to write this down. You got to express somebody's going to relate. Yeah. What was it? Was it a song that was difficult to perform live? Yeah, it took a while for me to perform, but but I didn't perform it till after it had been released, mm-hmm. uh, at where people knew it and certain people loved it and used it as their freedom song. Yeah. Um, I often had difficulty singing it, especially if I saw people crying. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can only imagine. We're here on the World Cafe. We're talking to Kenny Loggins. My name is Kaleo. Uh, Kenny's new memoir is called Still All Right. King of the soundtrack. That's that's a that's got a pretty catchy ring to it. And for our audience, one of the many hits you've had is going to be instantly recognizable. Here, take a listen. you know where you are, you are in the Danger Zone. From Top Gun and uh, featured in the sequel, Top Gun Maverick, uh, Danger Zone from Kenny Loggins. Reading that book, I was surprised to learn that you were not the first choice to be the vocalist on the Giorgio Moroder produced track, or potentially even the second, or or maybe more. What, what, what do you remember about, you know, pitching to be on that? Yeah, looking back on it, I think that Part of the part of the reason I wasn't on his list was because I was down the street recording another song for the movie, playing with the boys, when I got a call from Giorgio, who said I need a singer tomorrow. Actually, it was probably I need a singer yesterday because he had to he had to dub his song into the movie in two days. So, I got uh, I got a copy of uh, the song. A cassette was sent to me. I met the the co-writer, his co-writer, and we sat with the song for a couple hours. I added some chords and some lyrics, and then um, next thing I know, next day I was in the studio with Giorgio recording the song. And you know, there were there's urban legend now practically around what acts were in in line ahead of me, who they'd ask first. You know, Ario Speedwagon, Kevin Cronin told me that he passed on it because the notes were too high. Um, Mickey Thomas from, from Starship passed on it because he just didn't like the song. Uh, and uh, Toto, Toto passed on it because the lawyers refused to agree. Um, I didn't bother with any of that stuff. I just went, okay, I'll make it what I want it to be. I'll get in there and kick at it. And um, so I'm good with that. And, you know, because I'm also a writer, so I'm not hamstrung by what it is right now, I can see what it could be. And, um, and I didn't get my lawyer involved until after we'd finished it. <laughs> How do you approach writing for a big blockbuster movie? 
is it is it depending on what you're asked for or is it depending on what the movie's about or do you have a uniform approach well for me i need to be excited about the movie i need to be excited about what the story is who the characters are if i feel i can emotionally relate to what's going on then i can write for it you know so i subsequently after those movies i was offered a couple movies where I, I didn't get it at all. You know, here's one scene. We have the guy and the girl walking by the river and we need something to fill, you know, three minutes. And that's not me. I don't want that kind of, I mean, I'll, I might do it if I have to, but if it doesn't turn me on, if it's, if it's just a filler moment, I, I, you might as well just have a soundtrack guy do that. Yeah, that makes sense. We're here on the World Cafe. Still All Right is the new memoir from Kenny Loggins. He's my guest today. One of the stories that was just enjoyable to read, and I, I can't think of anybody who wouldn't be intrigued when you get 50 different rock stars in a room to record a song together, was hearing about recording We Are the World. And there are so many points in that anecdote that made me smile or laugh. And, and you cover a lot of things that happen, so this might be a tough question to answer. But if you could single out a moment from that experience that was your favorite, what would it be? Uh, there were so many good moments, but um, I think the one that really caught me by surprise was when um, Paul Simon, who was quiet through most of it, looked up at the 30 or 40 people on the grandstands behind him that we were all lined up for singing. And he was on like the bottom row and he looks up and he goes, whoa, he says, if a bomb drops on this room, John Denver's back on top. And, and, and I heard that was his, his sort of edgy sense of humor that I loved. I loved that about his songs. And it was, it was right there. It was quintessential Paul Simon. It was really good. Also, you know, everybody has a Prince story. And, and the Prince story for you is that he doesn't show up. Right. You know, but his name was on the floor. He was intended to be one of the soloists, but he didn't show. And then Michael Jackson, Michael came to me and said, who should we put there? <laughs> and I said, and I had just met Huey Lewis that night at the, at the award show. And I said, well, I think Huey Lewis is the strongest voice out there and, and definitely going to be a big star. So he and Quincy went up to Huey and ran it by him, had him sing it the line for them and then he next thing i know he was on the line next to me yeah sorry prince prince did fine by the way he he, <laughs> he wasn't on that record but his other records did pretty well yeah he did not have a bad 80s at all mm. um the third uh, section of the book you know really gets into your personal life uh with your family and you share a lot of details ab about your breakups with your ex-wives uh your issues with uh, Xanax or other benzos. And when you're writing about your work in your memoir, it's one thing, right? But when it's your family and what you're going through and some of the demons, perhaps, it's quite another. How did you approach writing some of the more personal parts of the memoir where it isn't just sort of, this happened and this was really cool. It was, you know, very reflective part. My goal was to be as emotionally honest as possible, but not drag the listener through too much of the negativity, you know, just to talk about what worked, what didn't work, and try not to hang out there too long, you know, but be honest, because like I say, when I started the book, my idea of the book was a legacy piece for me. I wanted my children and my grandchildren to know me better and understand what it was that I was going through. And 
so I wanted that to be what the book was, you know, yeah. an honest telling of someone's life. Yeah. And I, I got the sense of knowing who you were reading this book. So when it was all said and done with the finished manuscript in hand, what, what was your response to seeing your life staring back at you when you finally had a chance to read it and go front to back? What did you think of this guy? You know, who grew up in, who was born in Seattle, lived in Los Angeles, and did all of these incredible things. Uh, mostly gratitude. You know, for me to look back at the, at it all and see how amazing it is to have had a 50-year career that I, I still get to sing for a living, and how many artists who started when I started don't get to do that. You know, it's yeah. like it's whether they had a hit or not had a hit. You know, to to be able to hang in there this long and still be doing interviews and still be singing for a living is you know, incredibly lucky. So, yeah. all, you know, all in all, it's been a very lucky life. And, uh, and I'm planning on it continuing for a bit. <laughs> You're listening to The World Cafe. Been talking with Kenny Loggins. The memoir, Still All Right, is available now. And when we do these sorts of things, Kenny, we always uh, give it dealer's choice. Is there anything uh, that you would like to end with musically? Can be from your discography, can be something you just want to hear on the radio. What would you like to take us out with? Well, it can be any number of things, but I think today, Conviction of the Heart would be appropriate. I wrote that with Guy Thomas years ago. There's a good story around that, but we won't tell it. <laughs> you have to buy the book to read it. <laughs> Let's hear Convictions of the Heart. Kenny Loggins. Kenny, thank you so much for being here on the World Cafe today. Thank you. Do we forget or forget? There's a whole lot of life waiting to live when one day we're brave enough to talk with conviction of the heart. Conviction of the Heart from Kenny Loggins. An absolute pleasure to speak with Kenny. His new memoir, Still All Right, is available now. We're back in a minute with more World Cafe.